What drives one person to violence and another to peace? What works to reduce violent behaviours in conflict areas? Welcome to the Breaking Cycles of Conflict mini-series for the War Studies podcast, where we share our groundbreaking research on how traumas can drive violent and peaceful behaviour in conflict zones. This research has been carried out as part of the Cross-Border Conflict, Evidence, Policy and Trends Research Programme, otherwise known as ACCEPT, which is a UK international development funded project that aims to inform policies and programmes that support long-lasting peace. In this episode, Dr. Craig Larkin, Dr. Inna Rudolph and Dr. Rajan Basra discuss their research trip to Iraq, exploring issues of post-conflict recovery, reconstruction and reconciliation. Hi, I'm Dr. Craig Larkin, as part of the EXEP project, a lecture in Middle East politics. I'm Dr. Ina Rudolph. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for the Study of Divided Societies and a senior research fellow at uh, ICSR at the War Studies Department of King's College, London. And I'm Dr. Rajan Basra. And just like Ina, I'm a research fellow on the Accept project and a researcher at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. And we're here today to talk about our recent research trip to Iraq, uh, Mosul and the Nineveh Plains. We're looking at reconstruction efforts and the post-conflict rehabilitation. So perhaps, Enna, could you explain a little bit about the background of this trip? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a pleasure that we had the honor of conducting the trip despite all possible hurdles. And uh, I have been focusing for the past six to seven years on Iraq, but for me specifically, this trip brought a lot of new insights because for the first time we got to conduct interviews with local practitioners, basically with Iraqi civil society leaders who are currently trying to facilitate the part towards uh, post-conflict reconciliation and recovery. And this was a bit the background of the trip. We wanted to learn more what are the challenges, what are also like the daily hurdles that these local Iraqi practitioners are struggling with, what kind of meaningful measures can be taken by the Iraqi government to make their work on the ground easier, and uh, what kind of recommendations they themselves have for the international community, for international donor organizations with whom they have been engaging for quite a while, actually, like since the stabilization in 2017. So Rajan, what was actually your impression? It was your first time in Iraq. Yes, yeah, so despite my name, uh, Rajan Basra, I'm not from Basra, I'm not from Iraq, and I've never actually been to the country. So this is a, an entirely new experience for me. And I really loved it, actually. We got to see uh, a huge diversity of the country, both geographically, ethnically, actually in terms of religion as well. And I was actually surprised by how open people were to discussing everything that had happened, their life under ISIS, the immediate reaction regarding the liberation of Mosul, for instance, and all of the struggles that they've been dealing with in the years since ISIS's loss of its territory in Iraq. And so that really stuck out to me is just how open people were in acknowledging their own lives, the situations they've been through and the challenges they're facing now. Yeah, I think for me also to actually have the opportunity to go to Mosul and Nineveh was, was great. You know, having read a lot about the city, 
researched and studied and conducted interviews to actually be there physically in the space to see the destruction of parts of the city and to see the rehabilitation programs was just really eye-opening. And the challenges that still remain for Mosul and, and Iraq, you know, five years after the defeat of ISIS, they still remain very real. Yeah, this, this was surreal for me as well, being in Mosul. After having watched ISIS's videos of the control of the city, their takeover of the city, and then obviously a lot of documentaries and news reportings about the battle for the liberation of Mosul. So to be there on the ground and to see its situation five, six years after the fact was, uh, was pretty amazing. And I was actually surprised by how much damage there still is in the city. I thought as an outsider, I thought the reconstruction would have been a little bit quicker because now there are entire neighborhoods and streets that are still essentially unchanged from 2017. I don't yeah. know if you two were expecting anything different or, or more progress to have been made. No, I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite torn because on the one hand, of course, you have these devastating images of the rubble and still having signs in terms of which buildings have been marked as safe in terms of not really expecting a, a landmine uh, underneath your feet. But then on the other hand, I was also like so emotionally inspired by um, seeing what's, what's these local entrepreneurs, I, I referred to them as, as vintage revolutionaries, have actually achieved on the ground. All of these local activists that literally, I mean, since 2017 have been cleaning up their city card by card, uh, taking out the, the rubbish, creating all of these powerful campaigns on, on, on the neighborhood level to try like to clear neighborhood by neighborhoods to enable spaces for youth together, like to engage in projects, to kind of like to revive this volunteerism culture in the city. And I think against the background of the destruction, you have this powerful wave of civil society activism, this fascination of the locals with the city's cultural heritage. And as a researcher, I mean, as someone working on security with all this obsession with, with security-related issues, with topics such as violent extremism, ISIS, et cetera, I, I literally felt blessed of having these conversations with people where we would talk for 20 minutes, half an hour without even mentioning ISIS, but just about like certain episodes of the city's more ancient history, about cultural landmarks, about historical episodes as they were yeah, being brought to life by their grandparents or by their teachers. So that was quite fascinating for me. Yeah, I mean, I thought... It was interesting, the, the emphasis, and I know there has been, like with UNESCO's reviving the, the spirit of Mosul, there's a greater discussion of, of how far back we should go into Mosul's history and which is the more comfortable or uh, cosmopolitan time. So I think it was interesting that there was perhaps less of focus on the direct violence and, and more of an emphasis on brighter times, a sort of nostalgia for what used to be. And I wonder if that's also a coping mechanism of moving beyond, beyond the destruction. 
to a, a time where there was greater unity a greater understanding and cooperation. I think I was left with the impression that there needs to be some middle ground with dealing with this past violence, but also using cultural heritage as, as a way of healing. I'm not too sure how useful it is ultimately, like cultural uh, rehabilitation cannot really bring social healing. I don't know what, what you guys thought. I think it's tricky because what really struck me was that materially people's lives are still in a very, very difficult position in Mosul. A lot of the city is destroyed. People have employment infrastructure issues. And so I think it's useful to focus on symbolic projects to bring communities together, to revive the spirit of Mosul and so on. But you can't do that without ignoring or without also addressing people's material needs on a day-to-day basis just to have safety, security in their neighbourhoods and uh, functioning government and infrastructure. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and I still recall how we did this fascinating tour with the brilliant photographer, uh, Ali Baroudi, who was um, generous enough with his time to take us around like some of the hidden jewels of the city. And uh, we were visiting sites that are currently being reconstructed. And uh, we, we had the opportunity to, to chat a bit with one of the guards and... Um, I remember that he was himself quite conflicted in terms of experiencing feelings of pride, of being engaged on the grounds, working on the reconstruction of the church. Because on the one hand, he said, yes, definitely. I mean, that does contribute to reviving, you know, like the previous cosmopolitan image of the city. But on the other hand, whom are we reconstructing this for? It's not that the Christians have already returned to Mosul or are planning to return. And, and he even like made it very clear that he wasn't just talking about churches per se as a, as a sacred landmark for Christians, but also about mosques. Because he said we need actually tangible investment in, in, in the reconstruction of infrastructure. People need services. You can't really be that passionate about the cultural heritage on a hungry stomach. And, and, and that was definitely, I mean, a very sobering perspective. As much as we were taken by the energy of, of those driving the, the cultural heritage initiatives. What I do feel that was different in Mosul, and and I've seen this a lot even in Eastern Germany, like this kind of nostalgic obsession with the past in terms of everything before was better. And I mean, with, with my background, I come from Eastern Europe, whenever like it comes to economic reforms, then people try to escape in some kind of utopian version of socialism. And I think it was different in Mosul because even this, look back into the past despite being very idealized of, of how things used to be it didn't have like the same mantra or like the same motto of things were better before but also it had kind of an energy things are good now because we're doing it and now with our own hands and i think that was something powerful nevertheless of course like they made it very clear that they have to do it with their own hands because they don't feel that the state is very much present there to do it for them or that international um, donor organizations are really engaged in strategic and, and forward-looking programming and funding. Yeah, I find it was it was interesting. While there's been a lot of focus on UNESCO 
and the rehabilitation of Al Nuri Mosque and the Al Tahra Church complex. That the progress there has been quite slow. I thought there would perhaps have been more emphasis, more reconstruction, but there. Other mosques and churches have been rebuilt, and that's through local organizations, Islamic Waqf. And I, I was struck again that how ISIS tried to erase not only minority representation of, of Christian Yazidi Shabak uh, shrines, but also ordinary Sunni Muslim mosques that similarly had their Islamic inscriptions chipped away. So this, I was struck again just how much ISIS try to create a sort of year zero type of religious extremism that went back to the erasure of anything that they you know, visibly saw as offensive. And therefore there is a, a rebuilding from the ground up of these of different communities. And, and many of the communities are taking it into their own hands to, to reconstruct their mosques. Uh, I think uh, Ali Baroudi on, on the tour again, commented on, on local mosques that were fundraising to, to rebuild the minarets that had been used as sniper points. And, and you could see this was very visible around Mosul. The scaffolding and infrastructure was trying to rebuild the minarets that had been destroyed in the conflict and in, in the liberation of Mosul. So there is a there's local activity that I think needs to be encouraged and supported that is being engaged by the local community, even on the level of economic activity of the souks, seeing the revival of the local markets in Mosul is encouraging, but many of those shops are still not fully reopened. So there's this idea of after five years of the reconstruction and rebuilding, there's still an apprehension about fully returning. You know, many Muslawis are unsure about returning to those parts of the those parts of the souk and they're bringing their economic activities or their businesses when their businesses have moved to the other side of the river. Yeah, I I think there was there was a very important point that also Ali made when it comes to the economic competitiveness of these artisan workshops, because of course, with the reconstruction having very much progress on the other side of the city and shopping malls arising, like then's the question of how many people would be actually to, to tradition and like go buy their tools from the bazaar instead of going to a more like modernized, centralized um, shopping center. But I think something that also stuck in my memory is all of the stories of, of the city's resilience and that dating back even to Ottoman times and like this energy always to arise from the ashes and, and, and like to put something aside for bad times. And that always not necessarily with the help of the central authority, regardless of, of who was back then in power, but even like against and despite of who is in power. So even like the stories of the old yeah places where they used to store the weeds in order to have some reserves in case of some corrupt official would come like to um, take away some of the city supplies. That, that reveals a lot about like what, what people are being used to and how, how they have been raised like that. They always have to take precautionary measures because there's not necessarily an authority there who's going to sprung and like to be at their sides in, in times of need. Yeah, that sense of resilience was uh, was very strong. 
And although I had said earlier that, you know, I was surprised by the continued level of destruction and devastation in the city, in many ways, you know, life is going on in Mosul. You know, people are still living there day to day. The shops, it's life, it's hustle and bustle uh, in the old city and elsewhere. So, yeah, that would speak to then the resilience of the population of the people living there to have gone through not only the takeover of the city from ISIS, but the occupation by ISIS and then the war for liberation and ISIS's uh, uh, withdrawal from the city. What did you guys think of regards to, you know, there's been a lot of projects funded and aimed towards social cohesion and peace building and reconciliation. Do you think they've had much impact in Mosul and the Nineveh plains? No, sure. I mean, of course, it depends very much on, on the methodology that you would use to measure this impact. Uh, I know some organizations were particularly working with storytelling instead of going for particular indicators. And you have some powerful stories, of course. I, I remember several mediation sessions where the results were shared with me. Um, mediating between Christians and Shabak or like between Yazidi and Arab tribal communities where organizations or the practitioners were trying to map how the narratives have been shifting. So for example, if at the beginning of the encounter, you would have the idea of, let's say from a Yazidi perspective, Arab tribes came and took our daughters, like how this shifted later on through more and more encounters, through more and more like interaction at the human level, how it shifted to the level of, okay, certain radical rock individuals from certain Arab tribes came and did this and this and this negative things in our community. So like there are certain optimistic stories about more differentiation, like taking place in, in, in people's heads. But I find like what, what's very dangerous is on the one hand, like donor fatigue and on the other hand, local communities disillusionment with the whole industry of peace building. And it struck me that in terms of language, they are referring to it as an industry, like the economics of peace building, the industry of peace building to also signal like the level of corruption involved in this industry. On the one hand, misappropriation of funds. On the other hand, complete lack of coordination at the local, at the municipal, even up to the international level. And then, of course, third, the way things are being funded and who is being funded. Like internationals always going for the safe option of endorsing, sponsoring, institutionalizing the same profile of let's say, activists who speak English, who are kind of familiar with the terminology, but who are sometimes not, let's say, like the most embedded locally recognized individuals. So I, I think with all respect for the progress achieved, we shouldn't shy away from naming the challenges and from being open of what hasn't been done that strategically smart. Yeah, I was, I was struck also just by the lasting impact of displacement and rupture in, in the city. Like Mosul is not the same city that, you know, was previous post-2003 or ISIS takeover of the city. The demographics have changed, and that has a big impact on an understanding of each other, of neighbourhoods, of who actually lives in these communities. And there seems to be a lack of clarity 
on which communities have remained, those that have been displaced, and how to try to bring any type of, of reintegration, like what on earth does reintegration mean after a traumatic, violent displacement and rupture? So in our conversations and interviews with, with local peace activists, there was this tension between working with communities, but perhaps the communities are now further displaced. There's more distance between them. They don't live in the same neighborhoods. So how do you bring back together these different groups religious, ethnic, and also class divides. You know, I think it's too easy that the sectarian frame is always used when much of the, I think, skepticism or prejudice was also felt at a class level between those in the outs and those in the outskirts and those more middle-class uh, urbanites within within the city. Rajan, do you have any thoughts? I think it's really tricky because if you would do the thought experiment, Let's imagine tomorrow Mosul is brick by brick, exactly what it was like before ISIS took over. The city still fundamentally changed, right? And I don't know if this is something that's overlooked when it comes to the reconstruction work. People focus on the heritage of the the city, the architecture, the buildings and so on, to the point of maybe overlooking the people involved, whether that's demographics or communities. And maybe in some way this echoes the criticism of at least Western attention towards Iraq, Syria, and areas that were under ISIS control, where people said, look, you're only interested in this conflict because ISIS is known to destroy the heritage of sites under its control, right? Either traffics, loots, or destroys antiquities. And you don't care so much about the humans involved. And I wonder, what do you two think about that criticism as it was, during ISIS's heyday, and whether you you see the echoes of that now in the attempts to reconstruct Mosul and elsewhere. Are people focusing too much on the heritage at the cost of overlooking the humans involved? I think, honestly, the problem is not necessarily in focusing on the heritage, but I think the question is how you focus on the heritage. Right. You can engage in reconstruction of cultural heritage in a way that creates more opportunities for local communities to take things in their own hands. Or you can, of course, create more opportunities for international universities to get engaged in the excavation without having a lot of knowledge transfer or, let's say, cooperations with Muslim University or or with Maslawi archaeologists, etc., one of the controversial points when we were discussing even who is currently engaged in in excavation uh, work in some of the big prestigious archaeological projects, you would hear like these different names of, of Western universities being involved. But then again, like there isn't that much tracking and maybe even not really so much pressure by the Iraqi government on those, let's say, external actors to create more like local dynamics to work more with local experts to help them enhance their expertise in this area and i think this is something that can bring back the cultural heritage theme closer to the people another point i i definitely agree i mean things have to be happening both ways and 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 people are acknowledging this in interviews like on the one hand they would speak very fondly about their childhood memories 
with Assad Church or with Nuri Mosque. But then again, like they would say, what we need is, for example, we would need new schools. We would need a good, well-equipped hospital. We want to have our airport being open because this would be our gateway to the world. We don't want every time that we want to engage in tourism or we want to engage in travel to have to go through Erbil or like that people who want to visit Mosul have to go through Erbil or through Baghdad. We want to have opportunities for people to come and visit the city. And I think it's more like this local passion for creating a tourism industry around the cultural heritage that can have some tangible uh, footprint, even like on, on the local, the central periphery tensions that Craig was talking about. But I think that what also struck me is that regardless of how under-equipped hungry and like disillusioned they may seem in terms of the governance dimension and in terms of all of these administrative problems, there is still this overarching ambition to communicate to the outside world that Mosul is just not about ISIS. So I think even the the main message of especially those uh, engaged on the civil society front was Please go back, tell to the world that Mosul is a safe city. Tell to people that it would be easy for them to come and visit, that they have something interesting to see and like they want to disassociate themselves from this more recent years of, of the city's violent past. And I totally agree with, with Craig earlier that this is a type of coping mechanism. This is a type of looking for healing, looking for remedy at a more distant past. I think I think there is also a danger, particularly on, on Western and international funding of projects that need to be clear, deliverable, tangible, symbolic. This is the rebranding or reimagining of Mosul and therefore uh, El Nuri Mosque and El Tahrir Square are symbols of a cosmopolitan unified Mosul. I think to detach cultural heritage away from the practice of culture is really significant. You know, there is no point reimagining or recreating the site and buildings without the practice and community. So there has to be much more emphasis towards bringing back the communities to make it a cosmopolitan city again it has to have a diversity of, of people group. And I, I think that is the challenge, you know, in many of our interviews and speaking with minorities, say the Yazidis, uh, some Shabak and Christian, there's a reluctance and a fear, obviously, of a return to Mosul, regardless of rebuilding these sites, regardless of the reconstruction process. Life has changed. It's been reorientated. People have moved in displacement. They've been educated. They've got new jobs in different cities, in the KRG, in different parts of Iraq. And I think the challenge is the reintegration of Mosul into broader Iraq. So I think the danger can be seen like this targeted focus on the cultural sites without understanding it as part of a broader rehabilitation of Iraq and the state and what it means to be Maslawi inside the Iraqi Iraqi state. What about Rajan? We met with quite a few displaced minorities, particularly among the Yazidis. How was your impression of, of that community? 
What struck me was there seemed to be a difference between those Yazidis who lived through the atrocities in Sinjar, who survived it, in some cases were the sole survivors from their families or their communities, and those who had managed to escape the violence and were living in Kurdistan uh, and other parts of Iraq as well. It struck me, even though it's really obvious, that those who live through the conflict and those who are affected so deeply and so enormously by it are going to be much more maybe hostile in their attitudes towards reintegration with different communities, towards accepting people back into those areas again, compared with those who were relatively, don't want to use the word safe, but relatively, I don't know what the right term is, untouched because this doesn't really work everyone is was touched everyone was affected by the violence but but those who had a bit more of distance between themselves and uh, the atrocities of the of the conflict so that really stuck out to me and that in a way speaks to how from the outside sometimes you could look at these communities and think all right they must all have one shared collective opinion or one shared collective experience but obviously that's that's not the case anywhere in the world that you go to. And so even with the Yazidis that we spoke to on this trip, whether that was in Sinjar or whether that was in Lalish or elsewhere, was they're all obviously united by enormous tragedy. But even amongst, amongst them, there are lots of different opinions about what the community should do next. How should they react to this? Where should they look towards for hope and where should they orientate themselves in, in, in the future? Yeah, and no, I totally agree with, with Rajan and, and these differences you have even within like the same coded identity group. Mm. So even like within Shia Shabak, within Shia Turkmen, etc., within Yazidi, within like even the Christian community in and around mostly would have a lot of um different opinions that are somehow also formed by i mean the socialization part of your interviewee by their educational background but also like by their economic prospects so i think for for the yazidis right now especially i mean in the course of the very controversial sinjar agreement it's very much about choices and actually about the lack of choices you're either are kind of like left behind in a camp or your only option is to be forced to return to Sinjar where your home has been destroyed, where there are no guarantees that actually you would get the adequate amount of economic compensation like to rebuild your area, to restart your business. And that creates a lot of frustration and it, it's, it actually reinforces feelings of abandonment and alienation. And I think this abandonment, it's not just vis-a-vis the central government, but it's also like vis-a-vis their neighbors, vis-a-vis Kurdish forces. There is a lot of frustration, a lot of open wounds there in terms of we never got a real acknowledgement of our trauma. Even though, of course, there was like the Yazidi survivor law that that was passed in Iraq. Even when we were asking about the tangible outcomes of this law, people were still skeptical in terms of how much this law is going to change the culture, how much this law can actually prevent hate speech or like prejudices against Yazidis that from their perspective are seen as a structural problem. 
and not something that can be resolved with only one piece of legislation. Yeah, it was very clear in, in those interviews that the breakdown, not only the idea of betrayal and victimhood, but the lack of trust is, is very apparent. And I think this goes across many of the communities in, in Mosul and Nineveh, that the violence and conflict has led to a societal breakdown in trust that some would say have been there for, for decades anyway, the post-2003 uh, Allied invasion. But that's, it's very difficult to recreate a trust within communities that have been broken by violence. And I think that's something that came through, that they can't really move forward because the past has not been processed, has not been acknowledged, that there is a sort of trauma that needs to be spoken about, that needs to be acknowledged, there needs to be compensation, and perhaps there also needs to be justice. You know, justice is a very ambiguous and wide-ranging topic, and I think for many communities they see justice in different ways, but it has to be spoken about. It can't just be sort of swept under the, under the carpet. It's interesting, and as we spoke to one of activist in, in Mosul, and I was curious about the lack of memorialization for victims and the lack of posters for those who had died or, or commemorations. And he said, you know, that, that basically the, the society wanted, you know, couldn't be confronted. Why would there be 40,000 images and pictures of all the Muslawis who died during this, this violent episode? You know, we can't look at that every day or we're just going to be drowned by, by sorrow. But to some extent, he also acknowledged that they couldn't move beyond it, that while the walls mightn't contain images or pictures, but they still speak of the violence that happened within, you know, the destruction, the destroyed homes, the, the walls that have, are full of bullet holes. So they're living sort of with this reality of a violent past that isn't fully acknowledged or isn't fully discussed and, and how to move forward. So there's this strange dichotomy of, of being in between periods. Yeah, and, and maybe to an extent, of course, a bit of a counter reaction if we refer to memory as something being constructed or reconstructed against the background of power dynamics, realities on the ground, like the environments, uh, within which you operate, then again, it might be a, a subconscious act not to memorialize too much, not to displace the image of martyrs, kind of against the background that the whole of Mosul is surrounded by posters of martyrs, be it from Hashid or from Kurdish or from Iraqi army units that were killed during the violence. And Basically, like the community like reaction is we cannot do this inside the city because then it would be almost every wall would have more than 100 pictures of people who have been killed or forcefully disappeared. So, Craig, you, you said earlier that you interpret this as a desire to almost forget the past in a way, this sort of maybe mm -hmm. selective amnesia. Do you also think it could be because there is no shared narrative or history about actually what took place in Mosul because I was struck by how when we were driving around the city we would stop at a place and we would hear the story of how a family had been killed in a coalition bombing and another place would be 
okay, scores of people had been killed by an ISIS sniper. And you can remember the victims of these crimes, of these events, but in doing so, wouldn't you need to also remember the cause of their demise? And that is really controversial, right? Mm -hmm. To even acknowledge that there were civilian casualties of coalition bombings, rather than saying, oh, it's all on ISIS. Everyone involved, all 40,000 people, were victims of ISIS. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think I know my own research in, in Lebanon has proved this. And in periods where there's a contested conflict of multiple actors and there's not one narrative, it's quite difficult to, you know, the act of commemoration is very much a power play. So we can see it in Mosul. There's quite easily images of Hashid or Peshmerga that are seen as the heroic martyrs that help liberate the city. Whereas those that died as victims or those that died within the conflict, it's not, it's not so easy to commemorate. And also this is a city where there's been massive displacement. Those communities have left or have been forced to flee. They're not the same communities always that are living in the same places. So I think that it becomes almost a place of, of death and suffering collectively. But the, the community response of how it should be remembered is much more contested. You know, a good example is the one, one of the memorials around the Pepsi uh, wall uh, massacre. Again, this is a dash killing of innocent victims that were trying, I think two days before the liberation of Mosul, were trying to escape from a particular neighborhood right beside a Pepsi factory wall. Uh, around 60, 70 were killed and their names were handwritten on, on the wall. So this is very much a public commemoration of those victims. But even in the last few years, more names have been added to it. So there's this idea of, of memory is dynamic and it keeps on shifting. So whenever there was a, a particular number of victims, it seems that there's been more added. So th there's this debate, and I think it's easier to remember the victims of Daesh, a collective enemy, and therefore, you know, it's perhaps there will be monuments, there will be uh, commemorations of those that died under Daesh's uh, reign, but it, it's it's still very contested within the local communities. Do you think there's a risk that this could be seen as selective memorialization in the years to come? I think all memorialization is selective, mm. so it just it depends on you know also the politics involved. What is the narrative? Because what we witnessed is also local projects to memorialize. We came across a, a very skilled local Maslawi artist who's employed to create new statues and also a, a new square that looks at these sort of historic scenes of, of Mosul's history from ancient Babylonian Assyrian times right up until uh, the city's liberation. That's sort of this panorama of the, the living history of Mosul. And that's not apolitical as well. It's very much the construction of how Mosul should be remembered. What are the periods of great triumph and also the diversity in the city? You know, so those images of Islam, Christianity, and also Yazidi uh, temples of Lalish. So memorialization is ongoing and there's attempts to sort of rebrand and rescript 
what muscle stands for what is this sort of in pluralist history but that's always going to be competed with different narratives of what actually happened during this last decade yeah and i think there is a bit of an unease or even anxiety of who is going to write these history chapters uh we were discussing with with some local community leaders I mean, how many episodes of Musso's violent history throughout the centuries have not been reflected adequately in official history books? So, I mean, naturally, even if things like the Shawaf revolt are not really digested in the historical memory of, of Iraqis per se, then it's even a more troubling question. How is the Mosul chapter going to be retold? or rephrased, who is going to be holding the pen in terms of emphasizing certain victimhoods and maybe ignoring or bearing others. And this even explains that some of the people that we interviewed pointed to the importance of how are you to deal with the mass graves. And, and some of them said maybe it makes sense really to try to identify like the DNA of the bodies in order really to see and to communicate to the world how many victims Mosul had. Because this is one of the more sensitive topics that a lot of them don't I mean, of course, acknowledging like the genocide against the Yazidis, but I don't feel that a lot of communities across Iraq know how much they suffered inside the city. And also trying to work with the stigma, for example, if you had actually stayed and lived throughout the period of ISIS, that you're not equated to an ISIS supporter. We had like different very human stories. I, I remember a girl telling us that her mom was sick and she couldn't really move her during that time. So she was forced to stay in the city, but by no means would ever agree to this type of ideology that was preached by ISIS. So I think they do have this need for other communities to acknowledge that, that it wasn't really a matter of choice, whether you left or escaped or didn't escape. Rajan, do you remember the story of the journalist who made it after a year? Oh, yeah. It's just remarkable. We met someone from Mosul who had lived through a year of ISIS's occupation and finally managed to be smuggled out of the caliphate into Turkey and his immediate relief upon making it to safety, falling to the ground, just being overwhelmed, really, from his experience. And actually, the people we spoke with Essentially, everyone had a story similar to this, right? Of how they survived life under occupation or how they escaped ISIS's control and then also of their return to the city. And I wonder if there, are really a, if there needs to be greater emphasis on collecting all of these stories of people who live through this rather than everything being forgotten or not documented, rather. Yeah, I mean, we, we learned also about this fascinating project of uh, Mosul Eye, where they were collecting actually oral histories from people all across Nineveh. And, and I think like even there, they tried very much to give it a more human face for people not just to talk about like the violent past, but also how their lives used to be what were childhood memories, what it meant to be member of this one particular community. How did you use actually to engage with members of other communities? What was the level of interaction in between different groups? And 
I think in that sense, for me, another big highlight from the trip was that we actually didn't do this very conventional field work in terms of coming from Erbil, doing a day in Mosul and then going back. But we got to see a lot of places in between. Um, we went to Bartala and we had some fascinating focus group interviews hosted at this organization, Minorities Eye. So we could talk with Shia Turkmen, Shia Shabak, Christian, I think, Orthodox, other community leader. And they're really seeing the different perspectives, both coming from youth, coming from more, let's say, of, of the older generation who have, of course, more memories of how life used to be under Saddam. That was, for me, also a very fascinating experience to see what, what's the common ground like there. Where do they agree on certain dynamics of, let's say, uh, systemic exclusion or discriminatory practices, the role of the state? Where do they see actually hope of, of the state going back to the driver's seat and really representing them, taking care of them, like giving them a sense of belonging? So that was for me, um, yeah, one of the most interesting encounters. I think this is key because too often particularly Western researchers, are focused on conflict and violence. We want to understand this period that, that happened and we detach it from everyday life. We detach it from the normal survival and, and every day and also the cooperation and community lifestyle. So I think it's, for me, it was valuable to, to visit Lalish to see Yazidi community to to visit their holy places to speak to multiple communities in in the Nineveh plains to try to understand it in its historic context. You know what struck me as well. In fact, people there's a difficulty around the terminologies of these temporal periods in Iraq's history. And when did the conflict begin? What conflict are we talking about? Is this a a different cycle? Who are the main actors? And they used a similar term that they use in the Middle East and also um, from Belfast, and that's the troubles. They use the Arabic word, adath, the idea of the, the events, these events that happened. Now, the events, it's very wide, it's very broad, but it allows people to reflect on multiple events. So they're not all talking about the same events. They're not all talking about the same periods in time. I think that's really useful. That's where the oral history approach is invaluable because we want to understand what are the main events that people are fixated on or how do they integrate one event and link it to another event. And too often we're just focused on on perhaps ISIS on perhaps this one traumatic event and we don't see the links. We don't see how, you know, how it's reimagined by different generations, how older generations look back nostalgically or have, have different views on, on, on relations. And I think to see the sort of long durée of what's happened in these regions is an invaluable way of trying to understand these more contemporary events. Yeah, because as you said, I mean, the, the events might have started 2014 or even with the preceding Sunni uprising and I mean, of course, like this period perceived very high repression on, on behalf of Maliki's government. But I think the structural factors are even predating 2003. This prejudice of Mosul being kind of a bastion of, of the Ba'ath Party regime. And I think their own 
you have reflection on their role within the Ba'ath Party system was also very interesting for me. Also, how they view of people who were kind of forced to be members of the Ba'ath Party because you, you didn't have much of a choice if you were a teacher or if you wanted to pursue some higher form of employment. But also like those who used the Ba'ath Party as a... Uh, yeah, as an opportunity to climb the social ladder. And there is a lot of kind of accusations on behalf of Maslawis for those, let's say, other communities who came to Mosul and who became supporters of Saddam, like because they wanted to secure for themselves a better livelihood, better prospects within the city, even at the expense of more, let's say, older generations of Maslawis who have been living in the city. So I think that kind of differentiation is is also very important. And also all of those feelings of having been punished, stigmatized since the fall of the regime, that the city, that the whole of Iraq kind of has had an open score to be settled with Mosul. And this perception, I think, is something very explosive. I think we shouldn't be focusing that much on the extremism part but on this feeling of being scapegoated yeah i think this is the structural issue that has to be tackled yeah no i totally agree i I think it's important to understand the social conditions that allowed for a group like isis to emerge and take root in Mosul, and whether those social conditions have actually been addressed and i think it still remains a secondary periphery city perhaps within iraq and needs to be better integrated within the wider state. So, you know, rather than just breaking it down as in Daesh Islamic extremism, it's important to look historically where there's been movements or challenges or resistance against the state and how that will have a sort of long-term impact. Just in sort of, in, in wrapping up, is you know, we've talked a lot about about the conflict and violence. Is there any elements of optimism that you took away from your visit to Mosul? I don't think we've been too pessimistic. I mean, we acknowledge that the local activists who are really keen to play a role, uh, they use their own initiative to start organizations or, or community responses to the destruction and devastation of Mosul. So there's definitely cause for optimism. I think there are a lot of very talented and driven people in the city that want to make their immediate environment a better place to be in. And those are the kinds of people I think that we should look to for inspiration and for maybe guidance for the future of the city. So there's definitely cause for optimism, yeah. You know? Yeah, I think maybe the beginning of the talk, I was far more optimistic than, than, than both of you. So I think I spoke a lot about let's say the personal effect that this volunteerism, this thriving cultural heritage revolution had on me as someone. So very interested in the history of the city. But overall, I think what what I take with me is our personal homework. What can we do better to communicate an identity of Mosul that's not connected to the ISIS label or to violent extremism? What can we do more to enable, I mean, opportunities for such activists like civil society, communal leaders to be able to come to Europe, to be able to tell their stories at conferences and not just for us as foreign researchers to be the one like who have to rephrase their stories. 
what can we do better to communicate to decision makers, to international donor organizations, how also to, on the one hand, expand their profile of whom they are funding, whom they are supporting, and how they are supporting them, like move away from some you know, Western ideas of how peace building projects are to be run, understand more the local context, the local culture, be more critical when it comes to language, especially like refraining from imposing very foreign terms or very ambitious terms as peace building, as reconciliation, while like people on the ground are basically trying to do decent conflict management rather than peace building. And uh, yeah, and, and, and spend more time on understanding the importance of sequencing different types of interventions. If the soil is not ready, if you do a truth and reconciliation or like truth hearing, it's going to backfire. If the victims don't feel safe speaking, if members of communities with, let's say, a lot of perpetrators from, from the same ethnic or religious group, uh, are feeling stigmatized, they would not have an open ear for the victimhood uh, of those have, who have been mostly affected by the violence. And uh, yeah, and I think always trying to point out to all of those international actors that in spite of their good role, they should try to promote more the efforts of local decision makers to promote more what the state is doing, because at the end, what needs to happen is for Iraqi people to trust in their own state, to regain the meaning of Watan, of homeland. And maybe one of the more disturbing quotes from the trip was by one Yazidi elder with whom we were discussing the situation in the camps and actually all of the kids who have grown up in the camp. And I still remember when we were talking about the term Watan, homeland, he said for them, Watan is the camp. They don't know anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a privilege to, to do this research and to hear stories. I was surprised by the openness and generosity of the people that we spoke to. I think we need to do everything that we can to be, to listen more, to amplify Iraqi voices and to hear a greater diversity of voices. You know, it's, we don't want to just be speaking to the same small a number of elites, but actually to have a, a wider range of voices and uh, to understand their situation and to, yeah, to encourage them to be involved in the solution, because certainly the international community is not going to bring about a solution of peace building or social cohesion in Iraq. This has to be an Iraqi uh, solution. So, you know, reviving a unified cosmopolitan spirit is not going to come from an international organization. It has to come from Iraqis themselves. Yeah, and, and I think this was also like their main message. When when they look to the West, they don't want some kind of westernized, imported philosophy of coexistence. Because in their perceptions, they are the godfathers of coexistence. Um, they would not be needing an architectural intervention to kind of, you know, encourage communities to sit together and basically like coexist or thrive in, in conversations or interactions with each other. But like what they hope from the international communities on the one hand, hardcore financial material investments 
and also like exercising more leverage vis-a-vis -vis Iraqi government, vis-a-vis -vis like central authorities to do their own part. Great. Thanks very much, guys. I think we will we'll end our discussion there. You've been listening to the Breaking Cycles of Conflict mini-series for the War Studies podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Clara May from the Accept Research Programme at King's College London. To find out more about Accept, please visit the link in the episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the War Studies podcast.